very much for coming this evening. Um, put it on a piece of scrap paper, yeah. um, in case something else comes to mind. And also to write down the time at which I will stop speaking, which you will be pleased to know is uh, 45 minutes from now, which is 21, 22. Well, that do. Um, I know how crowded the Oxford fixture list is, so I'm very grateful that when you could be attending, for example, an ancient philosophy work in progress center um, or a St. Bennett's Hall fellows meeting um, or a keyboard fellows meeting, you chose to be here. Thank you very much for coming. Those are three of the excuses that I have from people who wanted to come recruit. I would like to talk about um, personhood and the question what it takes to be a being, a creature, that counts morally in the um, in the topmost sense, what gets you into the primary uh, moral constituency, as I'll sometimes call it. What is it that makes you a person? A person can be used in a number of ways. Sometimes it's used as um, synonymous with being that is a member of the primary moral constituency. This is a being which has the basic rights which come at the top level of basic rightsood. What does it take to get you into that moral constituency? Now, Wittgenstein famously said in the Tractatus, it was 4166, that whatever can be said can be said clearly. And I think that's an admirable saying of Wittgenstein's, <coughs> except that I'm not sure what he means by said. And I'm not entirely clear what clearly means. And when he says whatever can be said at all, I'm not entirely sure about meaning at all either. So it might perhaps be one of those strange things of self-refuting utterance. Um, but the application of that to this talk tonight is that I think some of the most important things that there are to say about personhood are extremely difficult to say clearly or at all. And I therefore apologize in advance if I'm not clear. Because I think what we have in the debate about personhood, um, two figures who stand opposite sides in this debate, both as it happens opposite figures, Jonathan Glover and Stephen Noble, what we have in the debate about is very often a debate between views which can be expressed extremely clearly and with great simplicity, and views which are very hard to express at all, and if you do express them, it's extremely difficult to do it with any um, clarity. Now, the problem, you might almost call it a tragedy, the problem is, in my opinion, that it's the people who find it hard to say what they mean who are in the right. It's that side where the truth lies. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us so much. Philosophy is difficult. Philosophy is intrinsically difficult. What ought to be surprising is if a very simple verbal formula succeeds in pinning down a very complex problem in a satisfactory way. 
And I don't think that happens here at all. One of the things I do in my research is inveigh against the idea of systematic moral theory in general. Because I think systematic moral theory, um, utilitarianism is the paradigm example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, as classically conceived by Bentham, or neoclassically conceived by J.J.C. Smart. That kind of view, coming back to Wittgenstein's epigram, is nice and clear. It's a view that can be said. But it seems to leave out so much that we want to say it, but we could figure out a way to say it. And one of the key pieces of philosophical writing for me, to which I go back again and again because I keep finding things in it, is William's critique, Bernard Williams' critique of utilitarianism. And one of the things that people are always saying about Bernard Williams' critique of utilitarianism is, what's he on about? What does he mean? What's he actually saying here? There's this idea in analytical philosophy, and I'm, I'm proud to call myself an analytical philosophy, but there's this idea that there's just one canonical expression of any given idea. And once you hit on just the right way to put the claim, that's it. It's over. You've got the claim. You don't need to worry anymore about how to formulate it. And you can then proceed in nice and logical steps, which are somehow inscribed in the nature of the world, the logical steps that you make cut reality of the joints. You can then proceed to a conclusion which is equally inscribed into the nature of things. The way I'm putting it will show you that I'm skeptical about that whole picture. I'm skeptical that there is a uniquely correct and rational way of framing almost any problem. There are certainly some illuminating ways of framing any problem. And there are some not so illuminating ways. And there are some ways which are just posturing and gas, for sure. But it doesn't follow from any of that that there's just one way to put a philosophical problem, and once you've got it, the problem's solved, or potentially solved, because you have the ingredients to construct a nice deductive argument, and when the conclusion of that comes out, it's all over. So there's a kind of methodological meta-problem running through this paper, and the methodological meta-problem is, how can we do good philosophy when we don't think philosophy is all, the, the truth in philosophy is always clear and simple. That much by way of a preamble. Let me offer you a couple of quotations. One is from Wittgenstein. My attitude towards him is an attitude towards the soul. I'm not of the opinion that he has a soul. It's not a hypothesis of the soul. That's Philosophical Investigations, part two, page 152. Translated by that, slightly mistranslated, she says attitude towards the soul. Sorry, she says attitude towards a soul. It's um, in the German, it's clearly the soul. Second quotation from Ray Gator, his wonderful book, Good and Evil, An Absolute Conception. Love is conditioned by its object, but love also yields its object. Any ethical outlook, much like ours, will take as central some primary moral constituency, some class of creatures who all alike share in the highest level of moral rights. And as I said before, person is a word which is used in a number of ways. One important way of using it is to mean 
member of the primary moral constituency. And I'm going to show the person that way. I may sometimes use it in other ways, but it means at least that in this talk. So what makes a creature a person? A member of the primary moral constituency. Well, here's a thesis. Humanism. Being human is sufficient for membership of the primary moral constituency. So if you're human, then you are a member of the primary moral constituency. I didn't say necessarily sufficient. I didn't say that only humans are members. I didn't say that to be a member of the primary moral constituency, you must be a human. But I did say that being human is sufficient. Now that position faces familiar objections to anyone who's read, for example, Peter Singer's uh, What's the adjective? Peter Singer's practical ethics. It's remarkable. Practical ethics. Um, this faces familiar objections. Humanism, according to Singer, Richard Ryder, and others, is arbitrary discrimination. It's like racism or sexism or ageism. Um, Richard Ryder coined the word speciesism. And I don't know, does anybody know whether that's in the Oxford English Dictionary yet? I, I don't, as it happens, no. I'm sure it will be soon. And the second, another objection, which is really just the same idea taken a bit deeper. Humanism bases its demarcation of persons on a biological property which is morally insignificant. You're human, so what? Membership of this or that species, like membership of this or that gender, age group, it's an insignificant matter of biological belief. It doesn't matter. So what does matter? The objection I just put could, in theory, be put by anyone who rejected the thesis I call humanism. Typically, they're put by proponents of another theory of personhood, which I'll call criterionism. And this says, actual possession of the criterion of moral properties Sorry, actual possession of the criteria of properties is necessarily sufficient for membership of the primary moral constituency. I'll say that again because it's a bit complicated. Actual possession of the criteria of properties is necessarily sufficient for membership of the primary moral constituency. So if you've got the criteria of properties, whatever they are, you're in, you're a person, you count. If you haven't got those criteria of properties, you're out, you don't count, you're toast. That's the truth. Um, you have to have the criteria of properties, and wherever they go, um, personhood goes. And whether they don't go to personhood, doesn't. Some quotations enunciating this view. This is from Practical Ethics by Singer. I propose to use person in the sense of a rational and self-conscious being to capture those elements of the popular sense of human being that are not covered by a member of the species Homo sapiens. That's Singer. Harris, in his book, John Harris, uh, Valuing Eyes. Um, persons are beings capable of valuing their own lives. Um, Michael Tooley, in a it's something to say imaginative, remarkable paper called Abortion and Infanticide, um, an organism possesses a serious right to life only if it possesses the concept of the self as a continuing subject of experiences in other mental states and believes that it is itself such an entity. And finally, this is from Marianne Warren. Her book, Moral Status, 1997. <coughs> the six key markers of personhood are one, sentience, two, emotionality, three, reason, four, the capacity to communicate, five, self-awareness, six, moral agency. 
So the criterial view typically uh, fixes on um, properties like these as criteria. You could, in principle, fix on all sorts of other things, but these are these psychological matters are typically what it fixes on. It's a nice, simple view. I'm going to say, you can probably already hear, that it's too simple. It seems to have some radical implications. It looks like it might well imply a sharp contraction of the circle of intuitive moral concern. If you have to be rational, then all children under a certain age will fail to count as persons. And perhaps people who are bad at wasting the tests will fail to count as persons. Perhaps people who don't do what gain theoretical economists tell them they should do, perhaps they'll fail to count as persons because they're not rational. All those options are still open until we pin down what we mean by rational. Um, certainly all children under a certain age will fail to count as persons. And people, there are people, criterialists, who explicitly like that. But if, for example, Tristan Engelhardt, if being a person is to be a responsible agent, children are not persons in a strict sense. Another criterion, self-consciousness. If self-consciousness is in a condition, then lots of mentally handicapped humans won't be persons because they're not self-conscious. If the capacity to communicate is a necessary condition of personality, then what about, you may have read the uh, well-known book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Jean-Dominique Bobby was in one of these catastrophic states of injury after an accident, where the only way he could, sorry, after a stroke, the only way he could communicate was by signaling and designing. If the capacity to communicate is a necessary condition of personhood, if Bobby had not learned how to use his eyelid, then he would have ceased to be a person. That seems pretty radical. Pretty remarkable. <coughs> if persons necessarily have the concept of a self as a continuing subject, and if persons necessarily believe that they are such selves, well, David Hume doesn't believe that he's a continuing subject. He may have the concept in the sense of thinking that um, it's possible for there to be such things. He doesn't believe he is such a thing. So it's like he isn't a person. Maybe Derek Prophet's not a person. Maybe most Buddhists aren't persons. And so on and so forth. Those aren't the points that I want to focus on here. I think they're serious worries for criteria serious of the typical brand. I think it's fairly easy to see how in principle you could fix this problem. You could just switch your criteria. Obviously enough. You could find different criteria for personhood and say, well, actually, I meant something more restricted by rational, I meant something more restricted by um, the classic community, whatever it is. So you could fix these problems in principle. In practice, criterialists actually seem rather cavalier about this to me. They don't seem terribly bothered about fixing these problems. Why is that? I don't understand why not. I think they should be. But that's not my main concern here. That's not really what I want to focus on. The key difficulties for criterialism that I do want to focus on in this paper are these three. The first difficulty, and I can say the first two of these pretty quickly, then the third will take up the rest of my time. First difficulty, the argumentative method underlying criterialism. It looks as if criterialists typically adopt their preferred criteria of moral significance because they think it explains the moral intuitions which we have anyway. So we should take a person to be a rational, self-conscious being because that fits with our intuitions. 
that explains what we already think. The criterion is adopted, in other words, because it doesn't have counterintuitive consequences. But then the very same criterion is used by Peter Singer and Michael Tooley and others to produce consequences wildly counterintuitive. For example, um, that it's morally acceptable to kill small babies or to kill the mentally disabled. There's a nice passage in Jeff McMahon's um, book on killing where he notes that it's a consequence of his view that um, if you have one baby which is not up to scratch um, as a potential person, um, the organs of which are needed by five other babies, then the right thing to do is, in a familiar kidnap trap kind of way, to kill that baby and distribute its organs amongst the others. McMahon notes that his view has this consequence. Um, and he notes it and moves on. As Stephen Marvel points out, he just notes it and then he moves on. He says there is this disturbing consequence. Oh dear, that's a bit of a problem. Um, leave that for now. And moves on. So here's the problem. We started adopting criterious views about rationality and subconsciousness, for example, being necessary conditions of personhood because this fitted with our intuitions. But then a bit later, it doesn't fit with our intuitions. Second problem which I'll also be pretty quick about. What's the criterious picture of moral reasoning? What are we supposed to do when we come across a being that we haven't met before? Are we supposed first to see if it satisfies our criteria for person, and then if it does, treat it as a person? That sounds a bit bonkers to me. It sounds a bit like the well-known caricature, the Cartesian detective. There's a wonderful Monty Python skit on Descartes where um, Descartes becomes a detective called Inspector René Doughty Descartes. Um, you have passages of text like a phone like object appears to ring. <laughs> it seems to Inspector Doughty Descartes that he should have and picked his own. Descartes here, he positive. Um, so there's this strange idea which you can, if you're mercilessly parodying, Cartesianism have. But if you were Cartesian, then you had to go around working out that the things around you were really there all the time, that the external world actually exists. Um, I, I, I think therefore I am my clear perceptions, uh, my clear perceptions of Cartesian, my God, God is not a deceiver. So there really is a table over there, thank God for that. Um, we start with the hypothesis, the opinion. Demineral is Wittgenstein's word. We start with the hypothesis that we've got a person in front of us. And then we do some, we produce a, a checklist. We tick the boxes. It satisfies the test. Right, it's a person. Thank goodness for that. And we feel justified in acting in line with our hypothesis that this is a person, just insofar as the behavior evidence confirms that hypothesis. Now, if criterionism is going to be a plausible view, it can't be this kind of view. It can't be a view about real-time reasoning. And if you've done some moral theory, you'll know that in moral theory there's a distinction between um, theories applied as criteria of rightness and theories applied as decisions. And it's routine for people to say, well, obviously, the amount to think to every Kantian has to work through the universalizability mechanism every time he acts in regards to that. And that's obviously mad. Um, it's equally mad to suppose that the utilitarian has to work through the Benthamite calculus or 
he goes on an axe. Um, J.S. Mill, John Stuart Mill explicitly says this, of course. Um, no one supposes that a sailor has to calculate the national life, has, has to calculate the stars every time he wants to set out on a voyage. Um, that's what the National Almanac is for. It gives you the answers already. Um, so, the trouble is that in the case of criticism, this move hasn't been made. People haven't said, as they have in the case of utilitarianism and Kantianism, look, distinguish decision procedure and criterion of rightness. All we're talking about is what it takes for an action to be right. We're not talking about how people make their actual real-time decisions. If you do make that move, then, as Williams argues in a number of places, including in critique of utilitarianism, you might take other problems. But at any rate, you've solved this one. But in the case of criterionism, that move has, as far as I can see, looking at literature, simply not been made. People haven't blocked the possibility that criterionism might be this kind of perfectly bonkers view, which says that what you have to do is work through the checklist with every being or thing you come across and see whether it's rational, yes, tick, subconscious, yes, tick, emotional, has emotionality, yes, tick, okay, it's a person. Right, well, the way I presented that problem deliberately suggests a way for the criteria to answer it, um, namely to make this distinction that I just talked about between criteria and decision procedure. So, in principle, I think the first two problems I just mentioned could be solved. As a matter of fact, I don't think literature solves them in its current state. I don't think the criteria have cracked these problems in the literature's current state. And Criteria seem to me astonishingly cavalier about these problems. They don't seem to, to be sufficiently worried about them. The third objection, I think, is um, not like that. I think with the third objection, we get to the deepest problem with criteria. And here's the claim, the central claim of this paper, really. The sort of properties that criterias typically home in on, like self-consciousness, rationality, emotionality, um, the ability to relate, capacity to communicate. These properties aren't criteria of personhood at all. I want to try and persuade you. Rather, they're not criteria of personhood, they're dimensions of interpretations Oh, sorry, they are in dimensions of interpretation of beings that we already take to be persons. They're parts of an ideal personhood, not criteria. They're not past tests. They're descriptions of what it would be to be an ideally complete and perfect person. And you might already be thinking that, that what I just said is rather unclear. I hope it will get more clear in what I say to spell out what I just said. But we are here at the distinction I started by trying to make between claims that could bluntly be called shallow, which are dead easy to state, um, but unfortunately false, and claims which are both deep and true, but also unfortunately extremely difficult to state. And it's at this point that my Apologies for my postulate narrative apply. Um, 
I'm going to press on regardless, in spite of the fact that I find this difficult to say, because I think it's crucial to democracy, actually, and to culture, that we shouldn't only find ourselves conversing with agree with us. And I think it's an increasing feature of our culture, and it's even more noticeable in America, I think, that people talk mostly to people from whom they'll get a nice, safe response. So um, you can probably see the connections between the kind of things I'm saying here and debates about abortion and euthanasia. Those connections may get clearer as we go on. This isn't a paper about abortion and euthanasia, it's a paper about a person. But anyway, abortion gives a very nice, clear example of a case where the two sides, particularly in America, simply aren't listening to each other, they're to each other. They, each side regards the other as vile, stupid, and contemptible. Each side has no conception, apparently, all too often, of the possible reasons that might have led intelligent, rational people to take the opposite position. And that's the kind of thing that I want to get away from. Because, as I say, I think it's democratically and culturally crucial that we don't just talk to people who agree with us. So here's the basic thought around which this paper was built. Contrary to what criterionism at least seems to suggest, we don't look for sentience or rationality or self-awareness or in a creature as a test to decide whether or not that creature counts as a person. It's the other way around. It's because we already see something as a person that we know that it's the kind of creature which is likely to display sentience rationality, self-awareness, and the rest of the personal properties. We look for displays of these properties from the creature because we already take it to be a person, not as a test to determine that it is or isn't. We treat it as a person in advance of such displays. Think here about parenting, which I think is one of the clearest examples there are of what I'm talking about. Parents are, of course, aware of the differences in rationality, linguistic capacity, self-representing ability, and so forth, between young human beings at various stages of development. But a parent's attitude towards her child, I think, is always basically what Wittgenstein famously calls an attitude towards a soul. She doesn't do what criterionism seems to imply she should do. She doesn't start by treating her child as an inanimate object, like a sofa or a rubber plant or a fridge and grudgingly consent to adjust her attitude to it one step at a time. Um, only as and when it proves itself more than inanimate by passing a succession of behavioural tests, for at least having interests a bit like snails, singers drum in comparison, and then later on for the interests of some more advanced kind of animal, puppy perhaps, and eventually for full criteria's personhood. If parents did treat their children in this almost behavioristic fashion, I think the parents would be callous monsters, and I think the children would be basket cases. But in a world, in, in a world where parents generally accepted this sort of criteria view and applied it directly in their parenting practice, even the best adjustables would be awarded. Fortunately, parents aren't criterious, either in their decision procedure or in the criterion rights to restrict the personhood that they actually employ. Rather, a person treats a child from the very beginning. Or it's literally and actually true, in the sense of the interest of the criteria, as a creature that can reason, respond, reflect, feel, laugh, think about itself as a person, think about others as persons too, and do everything else that a person's characteristically do. From the beginning, her attitudes towards the child 
are not only, to use Peter Strawson's word in Freedom and Resentment, they're not only objective attitudes, attitudes towards the child as a thing, they also include participant reactive attitudes of just the same sort as the parent adopts towards anyone else. There's that dual perspective that we have on anybody. Anybody is an object. Anybody is a physical object. It's just that not just a physical object. As well as seeing them as an object, we can also see them as a subject to the participant reactive attitudes. Someone you can be angry with, someone you can uh, praise, someone you can blame, someone you can have a relationship with, the rest of them. The parent who says to a three-day-old baby, what do you think? Should we give you some more milk now? And mothers do say that kind of thing to their children. Or to a three-year-old toddler, how kind of you to share your toys with your sister when she's sad. The parent who says that kind of thing isn't deluded about a neonate's capacity for interpersonal practical reasoning. And she's not deluded about a toddler's capacity for calculatedly empathetic reasoning. But she's not making a sentimental joke either. She's not simply pretending that something she knows darn well isn't there, is there? What's happening, rather, is this. She's treating the baby, or the toddler, proleptically. She's treating the child as if it were already what it will become if she goes on treating it that way. That's how it gets to be perfect. By years of treating her children as creatures who have the personal properties, in the sense that interests the criterionists, she makes it true that they are creatures who have the personal properties in just that sense. This is how children change from mere objects into persons in the full-blown sense. The child staggers sorry, I read that bit. The child staggers across and bumps a book down on his sibling's lap. The parent's reaction is, how kind of you to let her share her book? Is that in fact what the toddler was doing? Was she sharing the book? The right answer to the question can be, yes it is, once the parent's given that reaction. The parent's reaction is an interpretation of the child's scene. Before the reaction, there may be no fact of the matter about what the child is doing. The child didn't know herself what her action was. But now that the mother offers this interpretation, the child, on the mother's authority, learns to see herself a certain way. Because her mother frames her act as one with a certain meaning, the giving of the gift, and because the child sees her mother as seeing her act this way, and because her mother sees the child as seeing her as seeing her act this way, the act comes to have this And I'm thinking there, if you know it, of Paul Bright's very famous article on how meaning is constructed. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of ball of mirrors and intentions. I see an intention in you that I should um, believe something. That's why you want to what you do. You, you say, P. And I see that your intention is to get this across to me. And you see that I see that that's your intention. And the intentions um, hall and mirror, they develop like in a hall of mirror, and hall of mirrors, and you get an intention out of that um, rather ingenious piece of bootstrap. Paul Rice's work is even more relevant to another <coughs> example of the sort of lepsis I'm talking about, language learning. Babies begin. Um, I think this is correct for developmental psychology. If I'm, if I'm really unlucky, there'll be a developmental psychologist in the audience who tell me that's, oh, that theory is completely off that. That's been completely disproved. But anyway, here goes. I risk it anyway. Um, a baby begins by babbling, by producing all the sounds the human mouth parts can make. 
Some of these sounds get a response because they're sounds that occur in the parent's language. Others don't because they're not. So, for example, most English adults can't pronounce um, the Scots word L-O-C-H. They say lock or lock or something. But they can't pronounce the Welsh word for church, W-L-A-N. They say lag or flag or something. But the adult's inability to say or <laughs> the adult's inability to make those sounds is a learned inability because English babies can and do make them. And it's only when they're conditioned by adults not to make them that they lose the ability. The baby hones in on the sounds and on the patterns of sound that get a response in her language. Then the baby learns to correlate particular patterns of sounds with particular contexts by the same onion process. What the parents say is she's learned to say tiger. That was my own first chance for this word. What's happened is the parents, by treating their daughter as if she has the word for tiger, perhaps the concept too, or perhaps she's just beginning to have a concept, they may be true that she has that word, and a little later perhaps the concept too. I'm not suggesting concepts are learned one by one, incidentally. I'm not suggesting anything about um, concept holism or concept atomism. That's a different thing. And here's a third kind of prolapsis, a kind of getting something to be something by taking it to be that thing and treating it as if it was that thing until it is. That's the best colloquial equivalent I can give to the way you prolapse this. Um, Stephen Darwell talks about something similar by talking about how we come to be and to hold others morally responsible. And this is in Darwell's wonderful book, um, The Second Person Standpoint. There seem to be many cases, Darwin says, where we wish to hold others accountable, though we seem to have very good evidence that they're not free to act for moral reasons in the way our practice of holding someone fully responsible seems to be supposed. For example, with children, we seem simultaneously to move on two tracks in the process of inducting them into full second-person responsibility, sometimes treating them proleptically, as though they were apt for second-person address as a way of developing moral competence, while nonetheless realising this is their developmental stage. This is an illusion. Or at least it's an illusion if you agree with the criteria about what it takes to be out of the second person address. My point, um, with which Darwin may or may not agree, is that what it takes to be out of the second person address doesn't have to be already realised and actualised capacities of the sort that interest criterias. The mother who asks her neonate child, shall I give you some milk, is certainly engaged in second person address, despite the incapacities, which he knows perfectly well about, from neonates. Another idea that's a bit similar is perhaps Daniel Dennett's idea of the intentional stance. To adopt the intentional stance towards another person is to constitute that other as a person by treating that other as a person. Something like the Davidsonian principle of charity is of work in our mutual interpretations. By charitably interpreting the other as a person, I'm making a person. Okay, so there's an ambiguity in the term person, which is perhaps apparent in the kind of things I'm saying. In ordinary language, person can mean a whole spectrum of things. At one end of this semantic range, it can mean something like what similar criteria wanted to mean, a rational subconscious being, or whatever. At the other end of its semantic range, the ordinary language term can pretty much be a synonym for human animal. And it seems to be part of the point of our concept of a person, to allow um, 
those young persons who are person, sorry, those young humans who are persons only in the human animal sense, to enter into a continuum of meaning towards the part in which they can become persons in a stronger sense. Okay, those aren't the only prolepses I could talk about. There's lots of other things in our shared life as social beings which can be seen in this sort of way as aspirations towards an ideal, which, like other ideals, is never fully realized. We ascribe the rights to freedom of assembly and freedom of speech to every human being, even though we know that small babies can't speak and don't assemble, and that acutely social, asocial learners may well never actually exercise either the right of freedom of assembly or the right of freedom of speech. Parents give their children the opportunities to play the cello, to learn Spanish, to be polite to Great Aunt Maud, even though the parents are fully aware that every one of these opportunities will, in all probability, be stirred. In minimally decent jurisdictions, the treatment, even of hardened criminals, displays the same pattern of basic openness to the convict, of leaving open the possibility that the convict reform, even when it's as good as certain that the convict will not do that. So there's a very general pattern here, and the basic idea of this paper is that um, all humans, even the healthy, intelligent, mature, well-adjusted, independent affluent adults that typical criterionism is focused on, are always only incompletely and impurely ages. We're all in this situation. That's part of what I'm saying here. Every one of us um, is an aspirant towards the ideal of personhood. We're never all agents can be. However well things go, we never do or even can reach the full potential of human well-being. We never can fully work out and articulate our own agency in the world. Each one of us always can be interpreted by a sufficiently determined skeptic of a rather familiar sort as just an object, not really an agent at all, but a victim of the instinctive or other determining external forces. An attitude towards the soul isn't just an idealisation as directed towards children, it's an idealisation as directed towards anyone. And one historical root for this kind of view is, of course, Kant. This is from Tamar Shapiro. There's a sense in which no one, regardless of age or maturity, is able to achieve autonomy on Kant's view. That's because the notion of autonomy in Kant is an ideal concept which outstrips all possible realisations in experience. Strictly speaking, every instance of human willing is necessarily the perfect realisation of transcendental freedom. And every virtuous character necessarily falls short of perfect virtue. And yet, the applicability of the moral law depends on our mapping these ideal concepts onto ourselves and one another for the purposes of guiding action. So we are to regard the social world as a community of autonomous agents, despite the fact the perfect realisations of autonomy are not going to be found. I'm not a systematic Kantian, I'm not a systematic anything, but at this point, what I have to say is quite close to Kant. I think Kant is right about this, that to see someone as self-aware, rational, whatever, is to see them under the aspect of a kind of ideal. It takes charity to constitute persons, and that imposes on persons a crucial sort of vulnerability and dependence. It's always possible to fail the test, if tests there are. It's always possible for someone to see you um, in a way that 
diminishes or undermines your personhood. Determinism is one way of thinking about people that has this effect. It's very easy to attack persons by withdrawing the second person attitude from them. Um, there's always some truth in sceptical or cynical views that reject the idealization that I'm talking about. For example, as I said before, the human person is a physical object, even if not merely a physical object. We fail to see each other as persons in a small way when we explain away what others do, when we refuse to listen to them, listen to them, when we refuse to take their wishes and ambitions seriously. We do it in bigger ways when we use others or fail to treat them as ends in themselves. At the limit, we can withdraw the interpersonal attitude from others completely by pretending that they simply aren't there, as the Irish settlers did to the Aboriginal Australians under the legal doctrine of terror police. There's no one here, so we can claim this land. Well, okay, there's one or two others around, but never mind about that. They don't count. That's a way of making others invisible. It's a way of denying them personally. We can treat others merely as physical objects, as happens sometimes in pornography, or in violence, or indeed in murder. Another way to um, reject the personhood of others is to declare them non-persons, which of course is what the Nazis did to the Jews. And my worry is that there's a sense in which the criterias are declaring the very old, the very young, and the very non-persons. Okay, so here's the story so far, and I've got four minutes. <coughs> Sorry. I'm saying that the criteria that the criterias pick on are not criteria personhood, they're not a bar that you have to leave in order to count as a person. They're part of the ideal of personhood. They're things that we look for in a being which we take to be a person. Um, once we take something to be a person, we have a kind of general expectation, a kind of general hope, perhaps a very faint hope, but a kind of general hope, an idealizing attitude towards that being, that these um, aspirations are part of what well-being is for that being. They're the kind of things that this being here, if things go well for it, might be imagined to achieve. So the personal properties don't set the boundaries of the class of persons. Something else sets the boundaries of that class. There is a set of beings that we come to and take to be persons. And that means taking them to be persons means that we think that those beings can pursue the ideal of personhood. Well, the very obvious question is, what is the class of beings to adopt this personal attitude? And my answer is, roughly speaking, the humanist one that I began with, roughly speaking, the boundaries of the class of persons are the boundaries of the human species. I say roughly speaking because I think there are exceptions to that and qualifications. I hope we'll have time to come to that in the next two minutes. Rubber, rubber plants, fridges, sofas, human babies, we come to these four things with very different attitudes. And we come to them with different attitudes, that's the point. We come to them with different attitudes. We don't run through a series of tests on them and then form different attitudes. The different attitudes are there already. Because I need a rubber plant or a fridge, I'm perfectly sure, unless my sanity is in question, that it won't attempt to talk to me or to tickle me as a baby. What makes me so sure of that? Well, simply the sort of thing that a rubber plant or a fridge is. 
And why do I think that um, rub plants and fridges just aren't the kind of thing that tries to talk to you or tickle you? And babies are. And if you ask, what, well, what kind of thing is that? What kind of thing is a baby? It's the obvious answer is, well, they're young human beings. Seeing something as a human being is seeing it as not merely a member of a particular biological species, but also as potentially something for which the ideal of personhood is a So our expectations are based squarely on the nature of the creature in question. And that typically means on the nature, on, on the species of the creature in question. When we engage with a cat, or a gerbil, or a rabbit plant, we have a set of expectations about how we behave, which are based on its nature as a member of that species. And we have different expectations for gerbils and cats, and different expectations again for lions, and different expectations again for blue whales, and so on and so forth. My point is simply, if it's the species of the being that you're engaging with that determines your expectations in all those cases. Usually, and barring special miraculous exceptional cases, which I'm not denying can occur, if that's what it is in all those other cases, then why should we deny that it's the species which determines our expectations in the case of human beings? So it's absolutely central to our moral responses to the things and creatures around us to assign them to species. It's species assignments that enable us to answer um, what you might think is the most basic question of all about anything that might be in front of us at any time, namely what kind of thing it is. Until we know what species it is, we don't know how it may act or how to treat it, what's good for it, how it might harm it or hinder it, what causes health for it, and so on. It's the nature of the creature that determines what well-being is for it. And its nature is its species. So there's nothing arbitrary about um, speciesism in this kind of sense. To treat a species of creatures as persons is to treat them on the assumption that they're individuals of a species, the ideal for which is roughly the highest attainable development of the qualities that um, concern us. In this sense, reference to species are an inevitable part of our talk about persons. In that sense, but not in some others, um, there are some familiar objections to speciesism, um, which um, I'm just going to raise, and not attempt to answer in full here, because I, it's time I let discussion begin. But um, here's one very obvious objection to what I've just said. Um, I haven't said that um, to be a person is sufficient. Sorry, I haven't said that to be a person is necessary to be a human being. I've said it's sufficient. Um, I haven't said it's necessary because I, I don't want to imply that members of other species could run into the moral community of human persons. We could discover a whole species, aliens or angels or whatever, which is like the human species in that its members are characteristically persons. Um, or a species that we already know about might, en masse, somehow change to become characteristically persons. Or some particular individual creature, locks parrot, um, or some group of creatures, um, wash over the chimney and sprouts. They might start to count as persons perhaps by beginning to display the properties. 
In special cases like those, we might have to do something like applying a checklist. We might have to say, well, how should we treat these bees? Um, what sorts of properties do they display? In a special case like that, we might want to apply a checklist and say something like the Cartesian detective would say, this is a problem case. In this problem case, we have to do some deduction. We have to do some reasoning. We haven't met these aliens before. We have to figure out what they're like. And maybe, though I doubt it, the checklist that we will apply to them in trying to decide what their persons will be something like Marianne Warren's checklist of six criteria, which, if you have, then you count as a person. Maybe what I want to close by suggesting is that what you have to do in a special and exceptional case, like an encounter with aliens, is special and exceptional. And it can't be used as the way to determine what you're already doing in every case. We already know about human beings. We already know that human beings are creatures who by their very nature, by their very characteristics, aim towards the idea of a personhood. That's the good for them. We know that already. And we don't need, therefore, when we're confronted with a human being, to apply these criteria tests to that human being. Think again of the Cartesian detective. In a special case where we really weren't sure whether our eyes were functioning properly, we might want to run through some kind of proof procedure to establish that there really is a table just here. That's not how we proceed in normal cases, and it couldn't be. In normal cases of perception, we take it for granted that there's a table here, or whatever it may be. It's built into our form of life, if you want to be interested in China, that such encounters are possible. So here's the error theory for how criterialism got started in the first place. The mistake that criterialism arose because people like Marianne Warren, who I think does this very clearly, talked about the special difficult cases, like meeting aliens, or like, suppose you, you get a possessed fridge, your fridge starts talking to you. Is your fridge a person? Deciding whether it's a person, you might apply criteria to that special case. What you do in that very extraordinary case can't be determinative, it shouldn't be determinative, for what you're already doing across the board in the rest of your form of life. The Cartesian detective may have a few jobs to do, but we don't need them all the time. In fact, we only need them a very small minority of the time. So that was one objection to the kind of view I'm arguing for, um, and I've suggested an outline and answered. Um, this is the view that I'd like to get clearer about, and I'd be very grateful if you now help to get clearer. <laughs>